Episode 264, How Prior Auths Collide with Trust. Today, I speak with Ron Wentz, CEO of MindShift. American healthcare entrepreneurs and executives you want to know. Talking. Relentlessly seeking value. It's kind of a vicious cycle. Payers don't trust providers to do the right thing and provide appropriate care. And okay, there's some logic there considering that 25-ish percent of healthcare delivered is low value or unnecessary. On the other hand, some patients actually need the care and now it's painstaking for them to get it. And that painstaking part of the sentence is borne by providers, at least logistically. So Then the providers learn how to expedite getting their patient's care by copying and pasting. And now they're gaming the system. Then more arduous processes get put in place. And now good physicians get caught in the same net as the less good ones. And they begin to spiral toward moral injury and burnout. Let's get to the bottom of this. Today, I speak with Ron Wentz, CEO of MindShift. My name is Stacey Richter, and this podcast is sponsored by Aventria Health Group. Ron Wentz, welcome to Relentless Health Value. Hi, Stacey. Thank you. So prior authorizations. I cannot imagine that there is very many people in the healthcare industry today, let alone patients, who don't have a sense of what a prior authorization is. But maybe you just want to, what's the definition? Basically, prior authorizations are an opportunity for a payer to ensure that basically that the right care is being given. Of course, there's a cost management component of it. There's a, hey, is this the right care for this particular person component of it? And then there's typically some kind of a compliance part of it, but it's imposed by the payers, requires providers who are wanting to do an expensive test or an expensive therapy or an expensive surgery to get approval from the health plan prior to providing that care. I had one of our shareholders call me the other day and say, You'll never guess what happened to me. I couldn't get my blood test because the doctor forgot to get a prior authorization. It's one of those things that only needs to happen once before you become very familiar with the whole concept. Yeah, it becomes an emotional issue. It did for this particular person because showed up for his lab test and got poked with a needle and then they realized they needed to do it again. So he was a little bit frustrated by that and, and obviously a little bit emotional by the fact he spent the time but didn't, wasn't able to get the, the care that he wanted. For sure. So you said there's three pieces to why payers put these in place. There was cost. What was the second one? So cost, typically they're also trying to make sure that it's the right care for the right medical condition. And so that one's usually uh, tied to something called a medical necessity. So does the diagnosis match the care that they're going to get. And then, as you said, compliance. And what does that entail? Compliance really is the way that payers can make sure that a particular referring physician in network or out of network is complying with the rules. And so what we find along the way in the work that we're doing that there's a variety of ways that prior authorizations are requested and the way that claims are submitted. And some of that's driven by the payers themselves Matter of fact, most of it's driven by the payers themselves that there's a variation between payer and payer on how these things are done. And so a lot of what a payer will do in addition to the first two is, you know, use a prior authorization as a data point on are we getting the right information to pay a claim? Are we getting the right information to manage care for a, a health plan member? That kind of stuff. So compliance is kind of that third component, but it ties in closely with the first two. Right. So what I'm understanding is the special nuance with compliance is basically are people following the rules? 
you know, like, are the I's dotted? Yeah. And logistically, are we good here? It's not necessarily, is this care evidence-based? That's the second one. Correct. Yeah, you said it better than I did. Thanks, Ron. Speaking about the second one, because I think that's where, not that the other two don't have any inarguable or arguable components to them. But I think it's the second one that causes the most consternation. And I think there's any number of people who have any number of examples. Like, for example, I interviewed Stacey Worthy on episode 153 of this podcast, and she's a patient advocacy attorney helping patients get evidence-based care. And she cited one example after another where a patient was trying to get, generally speaking, some expensive, but evidence-based care. And there was a lengthy and arduous prior auth process and or the prior auth got denied. Do you have any insight into that aspect of what a payer is trying to do here? I can't profess that I have better insights than anybody else other than, you know, when you take a step back and you look at what happens with the prior authorization, the guidelines that are typically provided for what a prior authorization will require for submission and approval are, interestingly enough, are developed by clinicians. So, you know, clinicians are really managing clinicians in a lot of ways. There are certainly other elements that come into play on the payer side. For example, we have different types of regulations they have to comply with. They have contracting rules they have to follow for their customers, which typically are employers and individuals, Medicare, Medicaid rules, that kind of stuff. So there's some of that kind of thing. But in general, the guidelines are developed by clinicians for clinicians. The, what really causes the breakdown is not necessarily that the, the physicians aren't all trying to do the right thing, but a lot of times prior authorizations don't make it to the clinician that designed the rules or even in uh, some of the more complex cases where it does end up with a clinician who will call a clinician and talk through it. It's the kind of the simpler ones that are executed by people that are not necessarily clinical trained. They're trained for their specific job skill, and they're just following essentially what's in black and white without any ability to adapt to the gray. So that, you know, in that 70 or 80 percent that kind of fall into that category, that's where you know, the best intents get derailed because you've got kind of that phone game happening where the rules were created by somebody else and they're handed off two or three different levels down. And now somebody that's really sitting in what looks like a an admin processing center or call center is making a decision based on what is essentially codified. So that's where they tend to break down. When you get a doctor talking to a doctor, a lot of times those discussions go much better, but those are usually the more higher cost and more complex or even new emerging type of things where clinicians are talking to clinicians. Yeah, assuming that a doctor in a specialty is talking to a doctor in the same right. specialty as evidenced by there's a couple of lawsuits or legal disputes where it was shown, you know, like there's some really experienced oncologist who's talking to a general dermatologist or something who's responsible right, for right. determining whether the claim is appropriate. Right. Well, and, you know, I kind of use the example a lot of times when I talk to people about prior authorization, even, even when you have people in the same knowledge base, same understanding, it kind of reminds me of, I don't know if you remember the internet craze where people trying to figure out if it was a gold dress or a blue dress people that are looking at the exact same picture will come to different opinions. And so that does still continue to drive friction, but at least a clinician talking to a clinician, they don't have a language barrier, that kind of stuff. So you end up with a much more, I think, a much more value added type of discussion 
than if you're a clinician trying to talk to somebody who's really just reading what's on a computer screen. And therein lies the crux of the dispute. You know, does a payer have a right to intervene in the relationship between a provider and their patient? Of course, yeah. This is what I've heard also bandied about, and I have a background in economics, so I tend to hang out with other economists and we tend to locate everything into some sort of economics envelope. But the idea that I have heard is what payers are concerned about is not necessarily the cost of the care, as long as it's not a surprise. If it's not a surprise, then you can fold it into the premiums, take your markup, and you're all good. But if something comes as a surprise, then it messes up the balance sheet. What I've heard is one of the rationales for prior us is to deny or delay care long enough that the cost can be anticipated so that premiums can be adjusted to accommodate it. Yeah, that's an interesting thought. I would say I don't know too many situations where you can predict care. You know, we have a ton of data in healthcare, so it's not like we can't model what the potential risks are for a particular cohort of patients. But you're never going to be, I mean, you're guessing. It's just a better guess. So you're never going to guess exactly what happens. So there's no question that we can do a better job of accommodating the fact that healthcare is messy and and you're always going to have surprises. That's just the nature of the beast. I don't know that I've had, so we have three chief medical officers that work with us or former chief medical officers that come out of health plans. And all of them have said, that in general, they feel like their job is to make sure people get adequate care. Certainly, there's an economic model to it. And we haven't really talked too much about, hey, we want to delay care just because we can predict better. But even, you know, you could delay care forever and still not predict with exact science. You could just find a way to maybe, to your point, cover up the the cost with an increase in premium, but that's not necessarily a better solution. It just is a solution that seems to be the the lowest common denominator of covering up the cost or, or accommodating that cost. So what's the impact on providers? Dare I ask you a leading question? Providers are, if you're talking about physicians, and it doesn't matter if you're a primary care physician or if you're talking about a specialist or even a, a radiologist or a lab, all of them are impacted typically negatively by a prior authorization because prior authorization is not imposed by a provider. Prior authorization is implemented by a payer and the provider bears the brunt of a lot of the labor to make it work and make it effective. So if they get it wrong, they just get a denial and then they have to redo it again, which I think, you know, the AMA says upwards of 90% of providers say there's been a negative impact to them and their business when the discussions that I have with clinicians and physicians at, at different places, they'll tell me I'm at a point where I have a, a choice of hiring another clinician so that I can take on more patient volume or I got to hire somebody to sit in my administrative staff that can make sure that I comply and can get paid. And more often than not, it defaults towards hiring the administrative staff, which means they can't help more patients. So there is a, a negative to the provider from a cost perspective, from a delay in care perspective, from a frustration and abrasion perspective. But then that cascades down to the people that they're the people that they're trying to treat. The patients also feel that it may not be as transparent to them as it is to a provider, but they absolutely feel it as a consequence of either, to your point earlier, delaying care potentially not being able to get the care that was originally diagnosed, potentially having to take a, a different drug as a first step and a step therapy type of model. So there are consequences for sure on the provider side. And how does a prior auth typically go down? So let's start the story here. 
patient goes to their physician, patient's sitting in the exam room, physician realizes patient may need X, Y, and Z service or drug. What happens now? This is one of the things that if we had perfect information, it'd probably be less painful, but that doesn't exist today. The only way that a physician may know if a prior auth is required for a specific lab test they want to order is they order the lab test and then they get notified either by somebody on their administrative staff or a lot of times after the lab order is already sent to the lab, the lab notifies them that you need to do a uh, prior authorization. So then there's a, a fairly you know, detailed get on the payer's website or get through some kind of you know, a lot of times see people that have, you know, post-it notes and spreadsheets that they're using to track these kind of things. They finally figure out what they need to do. They combine all the information together. They fill out the right fax form or they log into the right portal. They then submit it. They get a notification that, hey, we received it. And then it's really just up to the payer and their work queue on when they turn around, unless it's marked urgent, which it'll go through a kind of a fast lane, kind of an express lane that it'll get a little bit faster turnaround. And then it can take, you know, up to a couple of weeks before a prior authorization gets done. A lot of times what providers have resorted to is actually their staff will pick up the phone and call the payer. So now the payer is paying for a call into their call center. They may be able to expedite it. They may not be able to, or it certainly it can get elevated too. If it needs to go to a clinician on the payer side, it can get elevated. And then eventually they get that response back and it's approved or denied. A lot of times the denial could be something tied to the contract or the, the rules around that specific, you know, maybe there's a step therapy or it can be tied to, uh, hey, we didn't get all the information or you didn't sign the document or, hey, you got the wrong birth date. It can be any kind of number of things that may come up that require denial. That'll go through kind of a loop until it gets approved or denied finally. And then there's an appeal process that they go back through the whole thing and try and react to the the denial that they got and see if they can get it appealed and approved. And then eventually, you know, there's a final resolution, but that could take, you know, some significant amount of days that pass, but also amount of effort on behalf of the provider. Statistically, I want to say it takes about 15 hours, 16 hours, something like that a week for every physician on the prior authorizations they need to submit. So I am wrestling through a number of thoughts here on relative to the impact on patients of all this. On the one hand, I'm not sure how many how many hands I'm going to wind up having here, but on the one hand, you've got 25%, 30%, depends who you talk to, of care in this country is deemed unnecessary or low value. Not only is it costly, but it's also not risk-free. You know, if somebody has an invasive test, there's always the risk of infection or some other side effect. So you could see prior authorizations being put into place as a way to stop this unnecessary or low-value care. That's the one hand. On the other hand, you've got, you know, like do a search on Twitter for my drug got denied or I couldn't get this test. And you will find a multitude on any given day of any number of patients who are screaming bloody murder that like they're insulin they couldn't get or their transplant meds, which seems to be a big one, they couldn't get a hold of. Do you have any sense of the net impact on patients? You know, like, is the prior authorization thing working or is the net effect negative? Beauty's in the eye of the beholder. So if you look at things like the GAO did a study, I want to believe it's a couple of years ago now, that said that prior authorizations had saved the government a billion or $2 billion, somewhere in that range. From that standpoint, it was effective. But working is, you know, if you're a, a provider or a patient, you may look at it differently because a patient doesn't know that all of this stuff happened in the background. They just want to feel better. They want to deal with their medical condition. 
And all of this just seemed cumbersome and ridiculous to them, even to a point of there's a high level of people that abandon their, you know, they'll never pick up their drug or they'll just abandon their treatment altogether because of a prior auth. So that does happen. And so we actually added cost then because that medical condition obviously is going to get worse. Patient's not going to feel better. They don't really get all of the mechanics unless you work in the healthcare industry. And even then, you may not even understand all the mechanics of these things and why they exist. So there's a high level of frustration. So there's a lot of those kind of things that you would say, well, does it work? It does save money. It certainly has limited some of the care, but from an effectiveness perspective, you just said, you know, there's still 25, 30% of care that is unnecessary. And yet we still have this cumbersome prior auth process. So from a patient perspective, they're going to say no. From a, a payer perspective, they may say yes. From a provider's perspective, they would say no, except for maybe a few specific conditions or situations where there was a bad actor and and a prior auth actually did you know accomplish the right thing. The right care was provided, or the wrong care was was mitigated. Let's talk about you know some of the other stakeholders in the you know the supply chain here. If we're talking about a specialty pharmacy, I mean probably every single drug that they dispense is going to be prior off at some level. How are they dealing with the realities today? Yeah, it's a good question. Uh, so we actually, in, in my company, we work closely with, uh, especially pharmacy and home infusion on the medical side in particular. It's a significant amount of effort. They hire entire teams that do nothing but prior authorizations. It's about one in three you know, drugs or so need that prior authorization. And the only technology solutions that they have may be some workflow helpers. There might be a portal or there might be, you know, more recently it's starting to be added into an EMR. So a lot of times they have challenges from a standpoint of the technology doesn't support a better workflow. So it's almost always fairly manual. The other thing that happens is the way that a prior authorization is submitted and by who is dictated by the payer. There are times that, for example, uh, a patient gets prescribed an expensive medication and the prior authorization has to be submitted, but it has to be submitted by the prescribing physician. It can't be submitted by the pharmacy, depending on the payer. Not all payers are that way. And so that means it requires not only a back and forth between the pharmacy and the doctor, but then once that's done, then there's a back and forth between the payer and the doctor and the payer and the pharmacy. That's a fairly complex labor-intensive process and does impact everything from the availability of care, but it can also impact profitability. And in some cases, like diagnostic labs, the margins are so low, a lot of this kind of administrative burden can lead to an unprofitable business, or at least a segment of the business being unprofitable. I'm assuming if you've got every single payer with a different process, I can just imagine the post-it notes (laughs) hanging about. (laughs) Yes. You have the right picture in your head, I'm sure. (laughs) And I guess diagnostic labs are also sort of a piece of this. Especially I just had in February, I did an episode with the Lown Group who publishes the Shkreli Awards. And one of their award winners was a bunch of doctors and telemedicine. Basically, it was this giant conspiracy to defraud Medicare. And they managed to do so. It was $2 billion or something like that with fraudulent diagnostic genetic tests tests. So I can definitely see how after a billion with a B fraud scheme, you're going to have any number of of people that are trying to clamp down for better, for worse on genetic testing. We have a lot of discussions around this. Just to give you kind of a a statistic, I want to say that there's four or five new tests that come out almost every single day. So there's 
around 75 or 80,000 different types of genomics genetics tests available in the market. And not all of them serve a large part of the population that may be trying to solve one particular point of care. Typically, what happens is they're managed as an exception. So that means that that payer may have only seen that test once or twice or three times or not at all. And so the only way to manage that is by an exception process. It doesn't fall into their traditional workflow. So it kind of cogs up the wheel, slows things down by quite a bit, even to a point of there aren't really good libraries or information systems that tell you what are the requirements for a prior auth for one of these genomics or genetics tests because they're so new that the rules haven't even been written yet. And so in a lot of cases, the payer is reacting to a new test that they hadn't seen. To your point earlier, they haven't had time to go address the fact that this could be a test that they want to provide coverage for or they don't want to provide coverage for. They just all of a sudden get a a lab order that comes in and a prior auth to go with that and they react to it. So even though, to to your point earlier, these are some really fantastic tools that can help diagnose, monitor care, support precision medicine, all of that's really important. Those are, in fact, the most complex prior authorizations that we've seen, and certainly tied to our space, because they're not recurring. They're fairly new and just now getting into the market. So everybody's reacting to it instead of knowing that it's it's coming to market. Sounds like a tough one. E-prior auths happened. <laughs> What's an e-prior auth? Yeah, that's uh, it's a little bit of a misnomer. E-prior auth really is just there are some elect electronic components of a prior auth. So e-prior auth uh, happened in the pharmacy world first. It doesn't really exist much in the medical world. Uh, the pharmacy organizations coalesced around a, a single standard to submit an e-prior auth. But the e-prior auth really is just the actual submission, potentially some workflow to help collect data. And then you can, depending on if the prior authorization is a recurring type of prior authorization, you can automate the response for some percent of those but it's mostly a submission. It's the electronic submission of that. But beyond that, on either end of that, you have a ton of manual work, both for the payer and the provider on the prior authorizations. They haven't really made it into the medical side yet, but they do exist on the payer space and they're making pretty good progress. I think that'll continue to mature. By all means, I don't want to make it out like that's not a great solution. It's leaps and bounds from where they used to be. It just still has a long way to go before it's fully you know, what I would consider to be, you know, electronic or almost hands-free. There's still quite a bit of hands-on work that happens. What I'm understanding, this is the picture that I have, Ron. I have a picture of a computer screen with a big button in the middle of it that says submit prior auth. And then that button will shoot whatever to the right payer, as opposed to somebody in a provider office having a filing cabinet full of like different forms and then trying to figure out what phone number to fax it to. You're quite a bit ahead of where, I mean, the picture in your head is a little more advanced than where we are. So essentially what will happen is they'll be notified in their workflow that a prior authorization is required. And they typically have the ability to document or uh, fill out a, a form electronically. All of the things that are supporting documentation are typically clinical notes, could be supporting other information that's available to support that prior authorization. Those are not a part of that kind of push the button. That typically ends up being either a fax that has to happen after the fax. Sometimes you can do a, an electronic attachment, but all of that stuff still has to be done automated because the EMRs, not all the EMRs actually talk to the prior authorization engine that does the e-prior auth. All the e-prior auth does is 
uh, you know, it's an EDI. So it, it sends information from one part of the other, but somebody's still got to go get that information together from another database, typically an EMR, uh, attach it, fill out a form, which sometimes can be populated electronically, and then it's submitted. And then you'll get a response back saying, hey, we've received the prior auth. And depending on the medical condition, there are times that you can get a response back fairly quickly on the approval. It's basically just the, in quotes, phone line, if you will. Correct. That's a great analogy. So you still got to do all the stuff collecting it, as you said, printing out the clinical notes. You've got to do all of that on the provider side, but you don't have to remember a whole bunch of different phone numbers, which has been an issue in the past, just because even at any given payer, there's a whole bunch of different phone numbers for different areas and stuff. So it just cuts down on the misdirected info. Right, right. Absolutely. All right, so then the gold card thing happened, which on the face of it sounds possible, but set me straight, Ron. So gold carding is is becoming more popular. Essentially, for anybody who doesn't know what that is, you, you essentially a physician may be exempted from a prior authorization based on a contractual relationship. For example, there's a school of thought around what's called value-based care that you should be able to gold card all the providers that accept a, an at-risk or value-based care contract that is starting to take place in some of those contracts. But keep in mind, a lot of the reasons that prior authorizations are still required is because it's a new treatment, it's really expensive, and gold carding doesn't cover every single thing that a, a provider may need a prior authorization for. It usually only covers you know, some of the things that are fairly recurring and repetitive. Not That's not a huge saving in time, and it's certainly a step in the right direction, but it doesn't completely solve the problem. But essentially, it's just like saying, hey, You've got a driver's license to not have to submit a prior authorization, but it's usually for a specific set number of services that fall within your contract. So it's like the 80-20 rule, you know, like 80% of the time it'll it'll work? Yeah, it's something like that. It really just depends on the contract. And I would tell you that providers still end up submitting a fair amount of prior authorizations because that list of things or what's in the contract doesn't, again, doesn't encompass every single thing that they might come across as a provider, especially if you're a primary care physician or you're a specialist and you're seeing something that's more complex and they need, for example, one of those big genomics tests that we talked about earlier. But yeah, it is a higher volume and the gold carding has saved a lot of effort. It's just a step in the right direction. But, you know, in healthcare, that typically is how things go. You kind of step-by-step step make progress over time. So healthcare is definitely not an area where you can let perfect be the enemy of the good. I mean, I would think if I'm a clinician, especially just given the moral injury and the burnout and everything going on with clinicians who know what how to do right by their patients or feel like they do, they have to go through an arduous process where they have to defend their judgment just seems, you know, anything you can do to cut that down just seems like right. a step in the right direction, assuming that, you know, it's a clinician who has proven themselves to have good judgment. If I'm a clinician and everything I've done, you know, like every prior auth I do gets approved because it's actually evidence-based care and it's appropriate care. It's kind of like, don't you trust me now? Right. And that's a fair point. And to some extent, that's true. But one of the things that if you talk to a payer, they will tell you a different side of that same argument, which is most providers are not this way, but there are certain providers that have figured out Hey, if I if I write it up exactly this way, even if that doesn't apply, I know I'll get a prior auth approved faster or potentially automated. And so a lot of times what happens is you will see the same description of the medical condition, the same type of clinical information all come through for conditions that are similar, but not exactly the same with the idea of trying to expedite the approval done for the right reason. 
But what it does is from a payer's perspective, it really kind of poisons the well because it may not be the appropriate way to get approval. So somebody, you know, in, in a lot of ways, you can say they, they figured out how to game the system so that they can get a prior auth approval because of that small fraction of providers that aren't following the rules the right way, everybody gets penalized because then the payer's reaction is, well, you know, we can't trust people to send us the right information because our job is to validate and make sure we get the right care. It's appropriately costed. It's going to be, you know, in compliance. All of that is the role that they play. And this jeopardizes their ability to play that role. So they actually are going to react to that and clamp down on those. So that's where you mentioned before, all these kind of data things where people are finding waste, fraud, and abuse. That's what they're trying to find in there is, is somebody gaming the system and fraudulently getting a prior authorization when they shouldn't have at all. And I think you nailed it when you said trust, because it just sounds like that is at the crux of this whole thing, that nobody trusts each other. You know, like you just said that the payer doesn't trust the provider to send the right information. Well, obviously the provider doesn't trust the payer to approve the right thing. (laughs) Right, right, absolutely. So it's just this chasm of trust that, and everybody, it just sounds like, is is trying to figure out how to get what they need for the patient in the most efficient and effective way possible. Yeah, that's the interesting thing about it is the payer wants the patient or member for them to get the right care. They're becoming more and more responsible for that through some of the star ratings and things. The provider wants the patient to get the right care and the patient wants to get the right care. But even despite all of that commonality, how we go about doing that is completely disconnected. And so it's the it's the way that we ensure they get the right care that's driving all of this additional effort and friction in the system. Can't we all just get along? <laughs> I think I've heard that somewhere before. <laughs> Talk about mind shift. How does mind shift aim to solve this conundrum? Yeah, so our our view is a little bit different on prior authorization. The assumption is that we are going to, you know, everybody thinks we're going to eliminate prior authorization. I I really personally think PA, prior auth, is just a cost of doing business. So our approach has really been, okay, well, if we're going to have this thing with us for a long time, let's one, figure out how to leverage technology to reduce the friction uh, between the parties. So we can personally, our, our company can automate a lot of that stuff. Two, let's try to do our best job of having perfect information exchange between the pair of the provider, multiple providers and labs and stuff that are all involved in the care of a patient. And then three, let's try and turn it around as fast as possible so that the patient isn't negatively impacted. So that's kind of the way that we've approached it. So we use you know, some process automation on top of our technology stack, which is a blockchain AI platform. We predominantly focus on the provider side because a lot of the the heavy lifting for prior authorizations rely on the payer or on the provider side. And then we're just now uh, starting to get into discussions with payers on on essentially with the vision of we can pre-adjudicate a prior authorization at the point of care in just a fraction of the amount of time if we have a connection to a payer, direct connection to a payer. So we're just starting down that path. And the other thing, Stacey, that comes into play with this is what is the eligibility coverage? So then that dictates, you know, how prior authorization might be determined. And then the other one is all around transparency for the patient. What's the cost going to be at the point of care? All of that falls into what we call real-time medical benefits check, which is the space that we play in. You're effectively collecting all of the payer information, putting it in your technology so that when a provider goes to do a PA for whatever, they can basically just log into your system, get the information that they need 
and then I'm assuming do an EPA through you guys? Yeah, it's actually even a little bit more advanced than that. So if we are integrated with their software, whether it's an intake for a lab or a lab information management system or EMR, we basically kind of operate in the background. And when a patient is entered into their system, in about a second, we come back to them and tell them they have coverage. Here's primary, secondary payer. Here's what the patient's responsibility is going to be. Here's an estimate of what you should expect to get reimbursed. And a prior authorization is determined to be necessary. And then if we have the ability to submit a prior authorization, meaning that it's been delegated to us or the physician signature may not be required because we it came in through a home infusion pharmacy or came in through a diagnostic lab, then we can collect the information, guide them through their medical necessity and submit it electronically and then monitor for a result. Because the other big pain point is the two pain points that we hear a lot about is, I don't even know if I need a prior authorization, so can you help me with that? And two, once I do submit it, I have to keep calling or going back to the portal to figure out what the status is when it's approved so I can tell the patient and I can tell other clinicians that might be involved. So those are the two that are really significant pain points. The submission itself has a lot of variety to it, so there's still a fair amount of manual intervention that's going to be required depending on what it is, but but we can automate about 70 or 80% of the submissions. And if someone is interested in learning more about MindShift, where would you direct them, Ron? Our website, and it's kind of a funny spelling, is uh, mindshift.com, M-Y-N-D-S-H-F-T, mindshift.com. So I uh, left all the vowels out. I was going to say you got to think against eyes. Yeah, well, there is no I in MindShift. <laughs> Ron Wins, thank you so much for being on the Relentless Health Value podcast today. Thanks for having me. I look forward to uh, talking to you again soon. Links to everything discussed on the program today can be found at RelentlessHealthValue.com. If you visit the website, RelentlessHealthValue.com, you will also find a complete listing of all of the shows that we have published thus far with leading entrepreneurs and executives in the healthcare space today. Another cool feature is, you know, you can subscribe to the show so that every week the episode is automatically sent to you so you don't have to remember to go to the website to download it. Thanks so much for listening.